So this morning, we are going to talk about losing. We're going to talk about losing. Nobody wants to lose. For those of you who grew up playing sports or watched sports or perhaps some of you watched some of those, uh, those TV game shows or, or some of you might be, might be video gamers or whatever it is, nobody goes into anything saying, I am ready to get my rear end handed to me. Nobody says that. We all want to avoid losing. Losing brings up feelings of shame, feelings of weakness, feelings of inferiority. Whereas winning brings up feelings of, of overcoming, of joy, of perhaps sometimes can get to a point of pride. Nobody wants to lose. But we've all been there. We've all been in a situation where we've lost. And nobody likes it. Whether you have felt like you're in a situation where you see the options presented in front of you and no matter what happens, you're going to lose or even you remember back to points where you couldn't overcome. You couldn't do it all. You couldn't be victorious. It's a bad feeling. It's not fun on a practical level. And in the worst of cases, it can bring shame. It can bring frustration with ourselves and frustration with others. And nobody wants to lose. But what if I told you that there was a power to losing? What if I told you that sometimes we get so caught up with the idea of winning that we are willing to do things that we may not have done in order to win, whereas it may have been better to lose? There is a power to losing and a, and a, a willingness that we need to have to accept the fact that we can't do it all and that we can't win in every situation. But that's not always a bad thing. Sometimes the best thing that we can do is lose. What are you trying to say, Preston? I want us to turn to a passage in Scripture. You've already heard it said to you, Genesis chapter 32. Open your Scriptures to Genesis chapter 32. And in this passage, we're going to learn about an individual who lost. And through this individual's losing, something wonderful happens. Without this person losing, if this person would have tried to just triumph and overpower and win, they would have lost way more than if they had just given in and lost. This sounds very foreign. This sounds very foreign. Who wants to give up? Nobody does. But in this passage, it shows us that there is a time to lose. Let's figure out what that means. Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 32, is in the middle, is in the climax of a major narrative happening in the book of Genesis. Genesis, a majority of it, is going through the family line that God has chosen, starting with Abraham, originally called Abram. From Abraham comes Isaac. From Isaac comes Jacob. From Jacob comes Joseph. Joseph brings God's people to, to Egypt, and that brings us into the Exodus with Moses. But before we get over there, we are, this passage specifically focuses on the Jacob narrative. 
And we are caught right in the middle of Jacob's life, or even perhaps more towards the end of his life, where a lot has happened. I mean, knowing by, going by the name Jacob, you may hear Jacob and you may not assume much by that, but the, the very name Jacob tells us a lot of who this person is. When you think of names, you think of individuals. My name is Preston. A lot of, I found out a lot of Christians are named John, so there's a good chance some of you may be named John. A name alone in our context does not mean anything other than a distinction of people. My name is Preston. Your name is whatever your name. That's all it is. There's no meaning attached to our names. They're just ways to distinguish between people. But in the ancient context, in this passage, when the Bible was written, names meant so much more than just distinguishing people. But they meant and they almost communicated what kind of person somebody was. For example, the name Jacob sounds like a normal name for us. But Jacob was actually a Hebrew word. A Hebrew word that people would use in common vocabulary. And this word meant he who cheats. Jacob wasn't just known as Jacob, but when people would see him, they wouldn't just say, oh, look, it's Jacob. But they would go, oh, this guy, his name is he who cheats. I mean, if you walk around calling yourself he who cheats, how many people are going to trust you? But that's how names worked back in the day. And names had so much more power and influence than they may have today. And so just by Jacob's name, you can learn a little bit about Jacob. He was a swindler. He was a cheater. He was a deceiver. He was a liar. His life had been categorized by lying, cheating, stealing, taking advantage of other people to get him to a place of authority. Not somebody to, that you'd want to replicate. What are some of the things that he's done? Well, he's done a lot of different things. Before I jump into them, I want to make us all very aware that this passage and this story is a very difficult one for us to understand living in a Western context several thousands of years after this has happened in a completely different part of the world. There's a lot of culture happening here. There's a lot of ancient context. And so I'm, I'm really going to dive deep into my Bible nerd here for a moment. And so I encourage you to, to keep up with me to the best of your ability. And please feel free to talk with me afterwards if I get a little bit too jazzed about something. This, the, the, the intricacies and the nitty-gritty of the text is something that fascinates me. Is that scripture is so deep that we have to figure out how to get out of our own context to understand what it's saying. It's fascinating. So, that's a warning for you. Just a, a warning. But what are some things that Jacob has cheated, has deceived others for? Well, Jacob is the younger brother in his family. He has an older brother by the name of Esau. Their father being Isaac and their mother being Rebekah. And the way in which in the ancient world property was given, handed down in a family line, is it wasn't just given for somebody and then they got to choose what happened to it and then when they die, you know, they didn't write a will and say, okay, now this is how it's all going to go. No, the, the property and the money and the resources would be handed down to the firstborn, specifically the firstborn male. Sorry, ladies. And in this case, in this family, the firstborn male was Esau. Jacob was the youngest. Esau was the oldest. Two brothers. 
And so Jacob knew he wasn't getting anything out of his family's deal, so he decided to make it away and figure out how he could get some of the birthrights. And so what he did is he ended up stealing the birthright, which was the actual property, the, the, almost the title of saying, this person who, is who's going to get all of their father's stuff, all their father's money, all their father's cattle, when their father eventually died. He stole that from Esau. He went from having no security for his future to all of the security for his future. Stole it. And then he also stole what was called the father's blessing, the familial blessing, where there wasn't just a promise that somebody would achieve the birthright, but the the father's blessing was the official handing over of the birthright, the time when the dad said, I'm about to die, I need this to get into your hands, I'm going to bless you, and when I bless you, that is me handing over all of my stuff to you. And Jacob was able to not only deceive his brother, but deceive his father and to his father giving him all of his stuff, blessing him over blessing Esau. Taking advantage of those who he should have and they should have loved him most. Taking advantage of family. That's a low blow. After this, Esau is very frustrated and seeks out to kill Jacob. Jacob flees from the country with all of his stuff, all of his property, all of his animals, all of his money. Goes off, goes off to a different land, gets married, has a couple of kids, continues to build his wealth, and then he starts to come back. And when he comes back, that brings us to this point in the passage, Genesis chapter 32. And before we get to verse 22, we need to go to verse 6. This is in the midst of the journey of Jacob returning to his land, to the land of Abraham and Isaac and his fathers and and the promises that God has for him. He sent out some messengers ahead of him to go talk to the individuals living in this land, and this is what they say, verse 6. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, the flocks and herds and camels, into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one of the camps and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So Esau, or so, so Jacob returns, wondering exactly how it's going to happen, sends out messengers to his brother and saying, hey, I'm coming back, please don't attack me. And the messengers come back and say, well, guess what? He's coming to meet you, and he has an army with him. He is coming to, by the looks of it, destroy you. Jacob's sins appear to be catching up to him. He wronged his family in the past. His family is coming to get revenge. And so this is a crisis moment. Jacob is fearful that he's not only going to die, but he's also going to lose things that he has, and he's also going to lose this promise that God has already made to him. So he decides to divvy up the flock, divvy up the peoples, divide divide so they cannot conquer, and then, that, and then after that, he takes some time and prays, because you know when you don't know what to do, what should you do? Well, you probably should pray about it. But then we get to this point in the passage, verse 22, 
And we're kind of at that middle point, that, that weird point. Whenever somebody comes to a church or to Christians and says, what should I do in this situation? You say, well, you pray about it and you do what you can to, to, to work through that. You do what's in your power, but what do you do after that? What do you do in that middle ground when you don't know how something's going to work out, but you are, you've done all you can? That's the point that Jacob's at, and I'm sure you have been there before. The passage tells us that at that night, in the evening, it's dark, it's cold, there's a lot of anxiety in both Jacob and the family. Jacob continues to do what's in his power. He tells his family, which consisted of kids and, and servants and two wives, messy situation, not a good thing, but God works through imperfect people. He sets them on one side of this small creek or river type, and he sets himself on the other side so that he is in between Esau and this army of people and his family. And this is where the passage gets really, really weird. Really weird. Imagine the setting. As I said, it's dark. Jacob is alone. They're near this small creek. You can imagine sort of the water trickling along. More than likely, there's sounds of, of crickets in the evening, frogs croaking, there's, there's vegetation around you. Remember, a stream in the desert was a life source in a very arid and, and, and dry and deadly place. So there more than likely was animals nearby getting water. But Jacob was alone and wrestling with all this sort of stuff that's happening around him. And then, without any hint Without any preparation, without any explanation, the next part of this passage, verse 24, Jacob was left alone. Next sentence, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. What? What? So many questions. Who is this man? Why is he wrestling with Jacob? Why is Jacob taking part in this? And also keep in mind, Jacob is not young in this passage. He's 96 years old at this point in his life. A 96-year-old wrestling in the middle of the night, can't even recognize this person, can't recognize this man. And yet it says he wrestles with him until the breaking of the dawn, until through the night. We have to just... Take this verse for verse. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So not only is Jacob wrestling, but now he, for those of you who know what it's like for a bone to come out of socket, it's not a very easy experience. It's not a very fun experience. I mean, I know that for me at one point when I was at, at, at a summer camp, my knee got popped out of socket and I heard this pop and I was confused and then I felt searing pain in my knee and that's not fun. Now imagine doing that while wrestling as a 96-year-old all alone. What a weird story. Verse 
Verse 26, then the man said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then then the man said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please, Tell me your name. But the man said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. And I'll just finish to the end of the passage. The sun rose upon him as as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he turned the socket of Jacob's hip or touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the, of, on the sinew of the thigh. So the ending of this passage is, somehow seems more complicating than the beginning and the middle. What's happening here? Well, to understand what's happening here, again, we have to go back to the time the Bible's written, and we have to understand names. I mentioned before that names signify not just a person or or, a distinction of people, but who that person is, how you would imagine this person to act. And also at the same time, when you tell somebody, ask, what is your name? And then they were to give you their name, In this context, it was giving over some sort of authority to this individual. It's a weird thing to say. If I ask you, what's your name? You just tell me your name. I don't have any more authority over you. I'm just trying to be friendly. But in this day and age where hospitality is such an important fact of this culture, is that when you would give somebody your name, you would give them some authority over you, saying, this is who I am. This is all that I am. Remember, names signified more meaning. It's not just saying, my name is Jacob, but he's saying, I am a cheater. I am a deceiver. I'm a swindler. I'm a liar. He was putting himself out there before this man and saying, this is all that I am. And at that point, this man, whom the passage later refers to as God, is able to change his name. He says, you're no longer Jacob, but you are Israel. First time the word Israel is mentioned in the Bible. For you have striven with, you have wrestled with man and with God and have prevailed. Wait, I thought we were talking about losing. Remember, Jacob gives himself over to this man. He's done what he can, and he he gives up control of this situation. And only when he gives up control of this situation does this man, who refers to himself as God and who is referred to as God, only then is God able to change Jacob. Only then is God able, once Jacob surrenders himself to God, is God able to say, this is no longer who you are. This was your former self, but you are now something new. You are now something new. You're not a liar anymore. You've wrestled with God. And you've given up on this. You've you've given over control, but from that you have won. 
When we lose to God is when we win God. This passage is trying to show us the importance of, of, of being able to hand ourselves over to God, that we all hold such these different strongholds in our lives. We all hold different things so closely. We, we hold certain securities close to us, and sometimes that security is, is even control from other people and control from other influences. Sometimes we pride ourselves by saying, I am myself, I am me, and nobody else can change me. Nothing else can change me. But this passage is encouraging us. It's saying that when it comes to God, we need to give ourselves over to him. We need to allow God to take control of our lives so that he can change us from liars and swindlers and deceivers to people who have wrestled with God and by giving him control have prevailed. Because whether or not we like to admit it, we are all at a point of wrestling with God. Some of us are at a point of wrestling with God where Perhaps it's an easier match and we're more in favor with him taking over and teaching us things and encouraging us in things and challenge us things. But some of us also, and I think a majority of us, in fact, I don't, I'd say all of us, we're all still wrestling and saying, God, I don't know if I can do that. God, I don't know if this command that you've given me is one that I can follow. God, I don't know about this other thing you're telling me to do. We all are in a wrestling match with God. We all are battling to, make, to, to give God control but not wanting to because of our own sin and pride and our, our feeling of wanting to do it, our feeling of wanting to win, our feeling of wanting to be successful in life. Again, nobody likes to lose. But what we can learn from this passage is learn the fact that the only way we can win is to lose to God. That's for the case of, of Jacob or Israel. Because from this, Jacob's sons are, are able to become the, the tribes of Israel that form the nation of Israel after the Exodus period. And, and from that can come the, the divine monarchy that God puts into place in Israel. From that comes David, and from David comes Jesus. And Jesus is able to fully show the complete application of this passage in that through his death on the cross, through him giving himself over to God, listening to God, following the authority of God, only at that point can we have the ability to, to do that ourselves, to give control over to God. That is something called the gospel message, whereby believing in the death of Jesus on the cross to pay for our sins, turning from our sins and trusting in Jesus to forgive us of our sins and to take control of our lives. Only at that point do we go ourselves from being Jacobs, liars, cheaters, etc., etc., to ourselves being Israels, I guess. I don't know. People who have striven with God and with men, and have prevailed. That only happens through surrendering ourselves to God. 
through believing in Jesus and saying, God, it is your will above mine. I want to serve you with my life. I want to love you with my life. And I want to show people the love that you've offered me. Take control of my life. And then we direct our lives and design our lives to completely replicate Christ, the life of Jesus, the life that we are supposed to live ourselves, loving like Jesus, being humbled like Jesus, sacrificing like Jesus. That all only happens through losing, but losing to God. And so, in closing, the question I have for you is in what ways do you wrestle with God? What situations are happening in life where you're struggling to give God control? What situations do you have in life that you're just mad at God about? That are difficult, that are not fun, that are hurting you, that might be hurting your family, that might be hurting your community? What situations are you wrestling with God about and trying to understand why they're happening? Am I promising you you'll always get the answer? Well, no. But I am promising you that the best place to be in those situations is giving more control to God. Not just as the creator of the universe, but as the savior of our souls. And so that's your, that's your question to take home with you, is what are those battles that you have with God? What are those places that you're wrestling with God? And perhaps even ask others to help you give that control over to God. Like I said, nobody likes losing. Nobody likes to lose. But the scriptures here tell us that we do need to sometimes. We do need to lose. We need to lose the power of God working in us. And once we lose to him, then he begins to do his work in us and makes us look more and more like Jesus. And with that, let's, let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you today, a very difficult passage, a very difficult text, one that's confusing even for, for all of us, one that we don't fully understand, and there seems like after sermon there's more questions than answers. But Lord, I thank you, God, that you offer us an opportunity to submit to you, to trust in you, to give our control of our lives over to you, and only through that can we live out the gospel that you've given us to live. Lord, I thank you for the people here this morning, those listening in person or those tuning in online. Thank you for all of them. You know their journeys. You know where they're at. You know what they need. You know the battles you're having with them. You know the ways that we are all choosing sin over you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that and to to root out those evils that we commit on a day-to-day basis. We are all sinners before you, but because of your son and his death on the cross, we too, though wrestling with you and sometimes even wanting to win, wanting to figure you out, thank you that we have an opportunity to surrender to you. And only through surrendering to you, God, can we actually win. So Lord, help us today. Help us to swallow our pride. 
Help us to trust in you. And from that, help us to love others the way that you have called us to. Thank you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Preston. Uh, I'm going to read Mark 8, um, I think it's 30, verse 36 and 37. And we're going to sing, Lord, I need you one more time. Uh, but I thought these verses were very pertinent. It says, for what does, a profit, uh, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And for what can a man give and return for his soul? Though we c- could give everything, it, salvation has cost us nothing. And, uh, and losing to God, we gain everything. We gain life itself. We gain God himself. And for that, we have a reason to rejoice. We have a, re- a reason to be thankful. We have a reason to live our lives in hope. Uh, though we may lose everything, we have gained God. And so please, let's stand and sing this last song, uh, Lord, I Need You.